This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to today's Bright Focus Chat, AMD, the latest results from the AREDS 2 study. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. I'll briefly tell you about Bright Focus Foundation and what we'll do today. Bright Focus is funding some of the top scientists all around the world to find better treatments and hopefully cures for macular degeneration, glaucoma, and Alzheimer's. We share this information with families that are impacted by these diseases to help you uh, better manage these, these diseases. So we have a number of free publications, a lot of materials on our website, brightfocus.org. And today's Bright Focus chat is another way of giving you the latest news from the world of science. Let me tell you about today's chat. One of the, um, one of the areas we get the most questions about here at Bright Focus when it comes to AMD is vitamins and nutritional supplements, specifically the AREDS, uh, the AREDS for, for AMD. We get a lot of questions about that, so today we are talking to the, uh, the best source in the world on this. Uh, uh, her name is Dr. Emily Chu. She's one of the top vision scientists at the National Institute of Health. She's with the National Eye Institute, and she um, has done research over the years about vitamins and nutritional supplements, particularly uh, AREDS. So we're very fortunate to have the opportunity to have Dr. Chu with us. She is a, um, a winner of the Helen Keller Prize for Vision Research, which a lot of people think of as the Nobel Prize for Vision Science. And uh, Bright Focus is really fortunate to partner with Dr. Chu and her colleagues at the National Eye Institute to try to better educate uh, the American public about vision health, particularly macular degeneration and glaucoma. So, Dr. Chu, thank you very much for uh, for returning to the Bright Focus Chats. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's always fun to be here and to share our knowledge and to talk to our patients who are a big part of our, our focus as well, too. Well, great. And um, I want to start at the beginning. How did, you, how did you end up doing this? How did you end up becoming a vision scientist? Well, you know, we, we rely on mentoring, so mentoring is very important for us. And as a young medical student, I met a mentor who was uh, interested in doing research. Uh, her name was Dr. Brenda Galley, at that time at the University of Toronto, and she works on retinoblastoma, which is a, an eye tumor in children. I wanted to be a pediatrician when I first went to med school and ended up doing ophthalmology because of her, and she impressed on me that, you know, doing research, you can help thousands of people at once and, and really be very fulfilling. And I, you know, throughout my training, I went to places where there was very active uh, research. I went to, I was at Johns Hopkins for my fellowship. And, and during those days, macular generation was just beginning to be, you know, had a lot of research and people were very interested. Uh, and it was such excitement, all the faculty, all the trainees were really super excited and we learned I learned about clinical trials which are so important so that's the reason I ended up doing research and when I went back to back to um, to to be at National Eye Institute so I've been there ever since and uh, I really had a wonderful time we've you know we've been given a lot of opportunities to work to work for the American public and especially mm -hmm. for patients with vision loss and, and macular generation well, great. Yeah, it really cuts to the, the core of people's quality of life. So I really appreciate all the work that, that the National Eye Institute is doing. And so discussion today when we talk about the impact, connection between diet and you know, nutrition and vision health, um, I think it's really interesting because to me, the average person, when they think about the impact of diet 
on their health, they think about it in so-called, say, traditional ways, like can I fit into the, can I still fit into these clothes, or, you know, what am I going to weigh, what am I going to look like, or am I, but I don't think people may automatically make the connection between diet and, and vision health, so I guess, what, what is the connection? How does someone's uh, diet impact the quality of their, of their eyes? Well, I think diet is important for life. We're actually realizing that more and more in NIH, we've actually put a lot more resources on on studying nutrition, nutrition is the basis for many chronic conditions. Well, look at diabetes. People, you know, the, the rate of diabetes has increased because you're not fitting into your clothes like you should be. Uh, people are, are, you know, gaining weight. This is overall increase in, 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 in sort of just overweight obesity that has increased the chronic conditions such as diabetes. And macrogeneration, one of the risk factors is what we call um, body mass index. So the heavier you are, the more likely that you are to have um, one of the risk factors. But that isn't one of, that isn't the only one, but certainly it plays a role. So in our studies, what we did was uh, we, we started the age-related eye disease study, ERIDS, uh, call it, you know, abbreviation is ERIDS, uh, started in 1992. At that point, there were not a lot of information on the natural history of the condition. We didn't know who was all affected and how did it progress or what happens over time. And over that decade we studied patients, we learned a great deal. And one of the first things we did uh, was to instigate a, a, a questionnaire. You know, it's one of these things we ask you. What did you eat? You know, it's it's daunting. You don't remember what you ate yesterday, let alone what you do. But it just gives you an idea what the habits are. And we take people who don't eat certain things and people who eat lots of them. You get an idea what that impact might be. And in doing so, we realized that uh, patients who ate lots of fruits and vegetables, and this was in 1990, I guess it was probably 19... Uh, 89, even before 92, when we started the study, there was a study called the called the uh, uh, it, it's it's actually something that occurs every few years. It's called the National Health and Nutritional Examination Survey, or NHANES, where we actually asked patients, or not patients, but just the American public, what do you eat, and they actually take blood levels and see what people's blood levels are, all these nutrients. And they showed that people who ate a lot of fruits and vegetables had less macrogeneration. So that was even before we started our study. And so during our study, we, we have this uh, questionnaire. Uh, and of course, our study was looking at uh, supplements. And supplements in the 90s were very important because the cancer field and the research in cardiovascular disease, heart disease, uh, pointed out the fact that people who have very high levels of certain vitamins in their blood had a less uh, less affected being, you know, with either cancer or heart disease. So they said, aha, that must be the problem. So let's put them on high doses of vitamins. And hence, we started doing that for macrogeneration because that was what was being studied. And much to everyone's surprise, um, it didn't do anything for hearts or, or, or cancer or, or at all. But in macrogeneration, we found that a combination of vitamins, vitamin C, half a gram vitamin E, um, 100 international units, and beta-carotene, 15 milligrams of beta-carotene, which is a really high dose, uh, coupled with copper and zinc. And the zinc is sort of the key thing we're, we're interested in. Uh, zinc is an important uh, mineral. So in doing so, we found that we can delay the progression of macrogeneration. If you already have macrogeneration, it's likely we can do 
decrease the risk of going to the late form, which can cause vision loss by about 25% over five years. So uh, it's really amazing that we were able to show that because this is a very big public health problem. If we reduce by 25%, a lot of people can be affected by this. Um, so that was the reason we, we, we did that work. We, we also realized in the diet that there was a lot of other interesting aspects with this. Did you want me to go on and talk a bit more about the diet? Uh, or what you uh, yeah, we'll go ahead to turn to that. Yeah, just you know, kind of the um, uh, what you found about the diet. And I guess, you know, were there, sure. you know what, sure. what did you find? And were there surprises or unexpected uh, findings sure. in your research? Sure. So we so in the first study in Eris we looked at, we looked and said you know we found that lutein and zeaxanthine which you a lot of a lot of you heard a lot about are it's a type of a, a carotenoid or a type of a vitamin we eat and it's important because it makes up a very special part of your eye in the macula it's called like macular degeneration occurs in the macula and so those vitamins are really important we also found that people eating fish had a lower rate of having macrogeneration. And what's in fish, we don't know. Is it the fish oils? So based on that data, we actually did the second study, Paris 2, in which we gave fish oil and also lutein and zeaxanthine. And in that study, we found that fish oil, unfortunately, made no difference. It wasn't harmful or beneficial, but what was important was actually that the, the lutein zeaxanthine we added did have a, an incremental increase, a beneficial effect. So the ARITS-2, we actually have the lutein zeaxanthine. And we, got, we wanted to look at that because beta-carotene increases the risk of lung cancer in patients who are smokers. And so for that reason, we were happy that lutein zeaxanthine was, was good for the, for the study. And we also found that, you know, people who weren't even smokers, who were former smokers, had an increased risk of lung cancer if given beta carotene. So for those reasons, we now have the ARITS-2 as sort of our supplements important. But in doing so, we also, as I mentioned, we did, we did the questionnaire on what you ate. Um, and we were interested because there was a study done uh, really in, in, in the more recent years, I know about 10 years ago, they started looking at what we call a Mediterranean diet. Mediterranean diet is something that um, many of you are quite familiar with. You probably have heard a lot of, of this. Uh, it's, a it's really nine components of uh, of the diet, you know, there's, there's increase in, in fruits and vegetables and legumes and nuts, um, uh, uh, more whole grain, whole, whole grain than, than anything else, uh, and also uh, low on red meat and low and moderate intake of um, wine, and also the, the fatty acid, the, mono, the monosaturated fatty acids, such as the olive oil, is preferred over the so-called saturated fats, and also taking fish and, and low and moderate fish and, and, and white meat and, and dairy. So that's sort of the diet that we looked at. So in looking at that questionnaire, we were able to calculate what each person uh, would be for the Mediterranean diet. Did you take a high Mediterranean diet or did you take a moderate or, or not at all? So, you know, because it's like a small, medium, large. If you take a large dose of medium of Mediterranean diet, it was really helpful. So patients who were already at risk for macular degeneration, if they were a very high adherence to the Mediterranean diet, 
they really had a very much, uh, almost a 30% reduction in the risk of progressing to the late form. So even though you have disease that's, you know, in the moderate form, if you have a good diet, you can make, perhaps prevent that from going to the late. And that's part of the, the sort of uh, makeup of people who, who eat a good diet. Uh, and even if you have early disease, uh, in developing in sort of the early changes of our macular generation, we found it was a 25% reduction. So you can eat away your risk by having a very good diet. Uh, this was also true. Not, you know, it's interesting. We only not only did macular generation look. We also had patients do a cognitive function testing, and in that case, we asked the patient, especially in ARIDS too, uh, at baseline and every two years, we tested them with uh, a battery of tests that give us an idea of the cognition, uh, you know, asking their, their, their memory recall, looking at executive function, asking them to, to subtract seven from 100 backwards and naming certain things with fluency. So all that gave us a really good um, measure of their cognition. And guess what happened? Mediterranean diet was also important there too. So the higher adherence, the more likely you have a Mediterranean diet, the less you have of cognitive impairment. So it's, it seems like the brain and the eye are really tied together. So these, are, I think, are important findings that really help us. So I think this is something we have to take seriously. This is something we can do ourselves. And what does that mean? Well, what really drove it was the fish intake and how much you need to take. Well, it's two servings of fish a week, which is not a huge amount. But from some people, it's hard to get that fish you know, twice a week. And you can open up a can of tuna, and that would count as one serving. So fish was really important, but the overall diet is very important. Taking lots of fruits and vegetables as part of the Mediterranean diet is an important aspect of this. And we were delighted to find that. But we're not the only people, you know, only researchers found that. Other, other researchers have looked at other data, especially in Europe. Uh, they found similar findings. And, uh, and so, in fact, I think it is very important for us to think about that as some of our, you know, our recommendations for patients mm -hmm. as to what to do is making sure your diet is in good shape. Well, that's great. Those are really powerful. And Dr. Chu, we have several questions about the AREDS um, uh, uh, supplements themselves. Um, uh, one is um, when you're in the super, kind of the vitamin aisle of a supermarket or pharmacy, it can feel kind of overwhelming. Um, is there, um, how does someone know they're getting the, the correct product? I like to say that the um, look for the, the, the title AREDS2. That's more likely to give you what we tested. And there, there, there was a patent on it. There isn't a patent anymore. And, you know, vitamins are not regulated. So quite often they're not exactly what, what they say they are. So if mm -hmm. you see the AREDS2 on it, it's more likely that you're going to get the real McCoy, and that's what you need to be, should be taking. Mm -hmm. I think for some people, it, they may not they may not be able to tolerate certain things. For example, I know I have patients who can't tolerate the zinc because it does cause some GI upset. You know, in other words, their their bowels get really uh, a little bit messed up with it. And, and there's only a very few people who who feel who who have that problem. And then sometimes they just get the vitamins and and you know. The, and just lift up, leave out the zinc. But by and all, by, by, you know, for most, almost 99% of the people, if you look for AREDS2, that is a pretty good guarantee that you're in pretty good shape, and that's a, that's a, that's a good brand to have. Great. Yeah, and we have a few more questions kind of along that line. Um, uh, listeners wondering, can AREDS reverse vision damage that has already occurred? 
No, we don't reverse damage. We certainly, where we can reverse damage is when patients have the wet form of macular degeneration and they get the injections of the um, so-called, you know, you've heard of Avastin, you've heard of the Centus and ILEA, all those things that are part of the uh, macular degeneration uh, treatment. That's, they are, that's very powerful. So people who lose vision in the wet form they can get treatment. There are there is hope that something like forty percent will actually improve their vision. So that's true. But with supplements, we're only preserving what you've got now, and so it's important to start at the stage way before you lose vision. And then is the AREDS uh, is that for people with dry AMD or wet or what's the sort of where does it fall in the in the kind of the patient's progression? So believe it or not, it's for both. If you have a good vision on one eye and you have wet on the other, there's a good chance you will, you'll be also be helped by taking the ARID supplement. That's, those are patients we tested. People with wet or dry in one eye, like very severe disease in one eye, especially the wet and the fellow eye, definitely you, you, you can take that. People who have good vision, who've been told they have so-called a dry form, although that's very not, not very well defined, uh, they are also helped by that as well, too. So it's a combination of both. But the really severe dry type where the center is involved, the vision is very, you know, very poor. Uh, uh, it may be more difficult. I think you should, you should speak with your doctor to see whether it helps or not. But even those patients who have so-called dry in both eyes, but have you know, and not not terrible vision, but still reasonable good vision. They may still be helped by it. So the ARIDS too can be successfully in reducing the risk of, of more vision loss in the future. Interesting. Another listener is wondering: Can you take ARIDS proactively? Let's say someone like myself that doesn't have AMD, um, could I start taking it proactively to to help me as I age? So what we find is that. When we look at our patients in ARIS, the first study, we had patients who had no disease, and we didn't even give them that, that supplement. And then the second group were people with what we call early disease, and then an intermediate and then late disease. Those with early disease was not helped. Only when they got to the intermediate stage did that help. So the answer is no. It doesn't help everyone. And the most mm -hmm. important thing you need to do is go and see your eye doctor. If you have a family history of macular degeneration or you're worried about macular degeneration, you should see an eye doctor and have the eyes, your, your pupil dilated with some eye drops that make the pupil large so you can't, you can't read well, but they can look in better, uh, have a better view of what, of what the retina looks like and make that diagnosis. If you have a diagnosis of intermediate AMD, then you should take the ARIS supplement. So the answer is no, that's not for everyone. I get that answer, or I question often when children uh, who bring them, their parents in and say, you know, my father has terrible maturation, should I be taking this? I say, well, the most important thing for you is to have your eyes examined. And if you don't have that, in, uh, you know, at this point, you should have regular exams to check for any onset of it. Once it starts with the intermediate form, then you should take the ARID supplement. Well, great, and that, that really uh, tees up a question we've gotten from a few people today about family history. Um, I feel like we hear a lot of these days about genetic testing in the news or products advertised on TV or whatever. Is there a role for genetic testing in um, AMD? I think there's a strong role, but that role is for research, and we do a lot of that. And a lot of our work in ARIS 1 and ARIS 2 is based on genetic testing. Genetic testing is hugely important for us to understand why the disease happens and may give us clues as to where the treatment might be helpful. 
Uh, we, and the problem with the genetics of Mac generation is that it's not like the typical genetics. So all of us know about Down syndrome. Down syndrome is, a, you know, chromosome 21 has a defect, and it's a very specific area. And when you have it, you get a Down child. It's not the same in macrogeneration. That, that disease in Downs is called, uh, you know, monogenetic one gene, whereas in macrogeneration, we have 34 different areas in the, in the whole genome and 52 different varieties of that. So there's a huge number of genes that are involved, although two very specific ones are important. Complement factor agent arms 2 and chromosome 1 and 10 are really important, and they account for most of the genetic burden. But having that information doesn't help predict what happens completely in the future. So we know that uh, you can get the genetic testing, but what does it mean? Uh, for example, people, if the complex disease means that it can be affected by environment. And you already heard that um, diet is really important. And for someone who's a smoker, smoking is a really huge impact on macular generation. It increases your risk quite dramatically. And if, the more you smoke, the more likely you have it. So it's like almost like having a larger dose, the more you can get it. So those things affect your body and your environment. So uh, even sometimes if you have the gene, you may not even have the disease because you're healthy living. There are other things that are ongoing. And the genes aren't all just harmful genes. They're protective genes. There are certain genes that help you. So the, the interpretation of the genetic information is very difficult in this complex disease. So we, rec we don't recommend that patients get the genetic testing. One of, our, one of my colleagues, Dr. Ed Stone, who is at University of Iowa, has uh, done a lot of work in this, and, and, and he's very knowledgeable in genetics. And he said, you know, even though my mother has Mac generation, I don't do genetic testing because he shows examples of people who get Mac generation and have no genetic um, bearing at all. So you may belong into a false sense because your genetic look good, but in actual fact, you might have it. Or people who who have who get the genetic testing and found they have the gene, but yet may never get the disease, and that gives them such a burden of you know worry. So it's it's a very complex uh, situation. I would only do it if with the doctor, you know, talking to them what what that might mean, and even. The, you know, most physicians don't have the training to actually interpret a lot of these very complex genetic uh, information, uh, and, and that would be very important to have. And most people who do genetic testing uh, for, for their, in their practices will have a genetic counselor, and most doctors don't have that genetic counselor who would help interpret the data and talk to the patient. So the answer is no for, for mm -hmm. routine use for, for clinical practice, but for research, it's hugely important and very important to do. Well, that's great, and I appreciate uh, you clarifying that. And, and you know, you, you mentioned your research um, on AREDS and research of other colleagues. Um, and I want to talk for a minute about clinical trials. I think in the last year, we've all become very familiar with clinical trials with, in, in terms of the COVID vaccine and just, just amazingly yeah. Yeah. Uh, impressed at, at how it all works. How, do, how does, you know, something like the COVID trials, is, how does that process compare to, to the clinical trials in, in, in vision research? And how or why should someone consider volunteering? Well, clinical trials are hugely important for deciding whether treatment is important or not. And that's why the COVID vaccine was so amazing. I mean, 30,000 people volunteered, you know, in a 
you know, in a, in, in a drop of a hat, and, and, and we got information that was so useful in getting the vaccine out to people. I mean, that could not have been possible. Of course, the basic science, the lab work had to be done first, but, but that is really fast you know, really fast tracking things very rapidly uh, and very important. So with most studies and most pharmaceutical companies and, and even our government, what we do is test this and the clinical trials are the gold standards because we, you know, that, that flipping of the coin, whether you get it or not, is the most powerful tool we have to testing whether that specific thing you're testing, whether it's a pill or an injection or, uh, or some lifestyle or some surgical uh, treatment that can determine whether it's good or not, and and only through that very rigorous science can we determine whether treatments are good or not. And and COVID has really shown how important clinical trials are. Macular generation the same way. You know the injections that we've had the anti-VEGF therapy, the injections of the avastin for the wet form that came about because of very rigorous clinical trials that you know that's, that 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 went over a number of, of years before we, we we got to this. Most clinical trials or most drugs that start from the beginning to the end takes almost two decades to get through. That clinical trial is hugely important. And for those of you who are willing to, to be part of that process, we applaud you. And I, I, I really, um, you know, I follow patients for, uh, you know, Eritz is now almost 30 years old. We've got patients who are still with us and who participate from the very beginning and have given so much of their time and, and, and really very altruistically think, you know, saying this may not be good for me, but it may help my family or someone down the road, someone who comes behind me. Uh, so that altruistic uh, attitude has really helped us. Uh, and and having, you know, having been in a clinical trial helps you be alert to what new treatments might be possible. Uh, and there's there's some real good things that are that can be for both the researcher and the, and the actual participant. Uh, but the participants are to be highly applauded and it's such a laudable goal for them to, to be participating. And we certainly need patients, uh, such as patients who are affected with disease who are willing to undergo treatments. And of course, I have to explain that these treatments are, are things that researchers don't really understand. If we know the answer, we wouldn't be doing a clinical trial. We really want to know whether it's good or not. And so we have that what we call equipoise. We don't know whether it's good or not, and but that trial is the gold standard, and it helps giving treatment to people, uh, yourself to all the way to whoever comes comes you know before us. So it's really important. Well, that's great, and I really appreciate you articulating the benefits so clearly. And so, Dr. Stewart, we just have time for a couple more questions. But you know, when you talk about research. You know, you've obviously had a lot of great accomplishments. What do you think for the field division? Like, what's what's next? Like, from the perspective of the National Eye Institute at NIH, or just the the field division research? What what's the next frontier that you and your colleagues want to uh, want to get to? I think the next frontier. Well, there's a number of things. Um, for for macular generation specifically, I don't want to I want to address the fact that we have good treatment for the wet form macular generation. We don't have any for the dry, but we are working towards that. There are a number of companies and number of researchers who are working on seeing what the reason may be for the dry form macular generation, and hopefully we're getting close to finding something that would be very helpful to reduce the burden of, of blindness from that aspect of it. But I think the overarching 
uh, new technology that's really important, not only in macular generation, but throughout all of medicine and, and, and especially vision health. Vision health is particular is very geared to, to this, is, is the use of artificial intelligence or deep learning. Uh, that is really phenomenal where, if, where the machines are detecting things that humans cannot detect. It's really quite amazing. So what does that mean? Um, it means that we could perhaps detect diseases in a different way earlier uh, with different parameters, with less of the, the uh, you know, and we also know that there's gonna be a shortage of physicians coming up um, unless we can address that, that this will help us be better physicians. We can diagnose things better. We can detect things better. We can also predict who might go on to disease. Um, and so that might, that might help us in clinical research. We can enroll patients who clearly are the ones we wanna be able to treat right away or, uh, so those are important things. And we can also, in clinical practice, we know patients are going to progress. We may see them more frequently and offer them help in an earlier stage. Uh, so this AI or artificial intelligence deep learning uh, is all across the, the field. But, you know, for especially for ophthalmology, we do a lot of photographs and the image processing for this artificial intelligence, having the images is a really important part. You know, they... They, they teach a machine how to recognize certain things. A machine learns by itself. So that's a huge, huge, huge um, aspect. And then, of course, we all have electronic medical records, so what we call big data science, getting all these data together and trying to figure out uh, what, may be, what may be important. And we have a lot more power. The computing power, the computers are so much more powerful you know, because of the more recent development in that, that's allowed us to do all this. And now the merging of the different disciplines of the computer scientists, as well as the, um, as well as the, bio, you know, the, the biomedical field, we're just trying to get together and, and, and really learn a lot from each other. And hopefully we'll make this a better field and, and better, a better life for all of us uh, in terms of both, both the actual practice of medicine, the research part, and hopefully we can have something that would be equitable and even the patients will be using this as well. And they are already in some of the devices that are being used. So this is a huge, huge development that I see as a very important development in the future. Well, it's great. Really exciting time for, for vision research. And uh, Dr. Chu, it's been just a fantastic conversation, really um, just so exciting to hear about all of the progress being made. And as we conclude, I was wondering if you could share with the listeners you know, some, some sort of bigger picture um, maybe lesson that you've learned in your career or maybe one thing that you wish your patients knew or all Americans knew about, about vision health or any, any kind of concluding remarks you'd, you'd like to leave us with today. Well, I think vision health is obviously you know, crucially important for all of us. The quality of life is really important. As many surveys show that patients would rather have a uh, very, you know, disabling disease uh, compared to having vision loss because it really affects the quality of life. And I think the most important thing is that some of this can't be really what um, uh, we take on. We're empowered to take care of ourselves. And I think one of the most important things for, for all of us who, who, you know, who confront some of these diseases is the importance of having living well, living and, I, and sometimes, you know, it's not so easy. It's easy for us to say, but, but you know, having good nutrition, exercise, that is 
crucially important. And stopping smoking, these are just healthy living styles that really can help us in so many aspects of our, our life, not only for vision, but really for general health. So I think that's something that we haven't been taught in preventive medicine when we were in school. We're very focused on specific treatment. But I think taking this very seriously, the nutrition and, and making sure you exercise you know, both for our brains and for all the other aspects we go on. I think the big picture is that I think nutrition will become very important as we do more work. There's a lot of interest in uh, in going forward. We're doing a lot of work in genetics and precision medicine and precision nutrition. So overall, I think we can do a lot for ourselves by really, um, no matter what your circumstances are, to try and strive to, to teach those things to your family and to those around you, to, to be by example, to be a model of good good living. Well, that's great. Very great, great advice for all of us. And we'll be back next month, July 28th, with Dr. Joshua Deneyev from the University of Pennsylvania Medical Medical School, and he'll be talking. He'll be answering a, a wide range of questions from from our listeners about all things related to AMD. Um, and when the call concludes, you can leave a message for anything else that we might be able to help you with. You can always call us at one eight hundred four three seven two four two three. Again, that's eight hundred. 437-2423. You can always find resources on our website, brightfocus.org. Uh, Dr. Chu, I just want to thank you on behalf of, of Bright Focus and all of our listeners. This has been um, just tremendously enlightening to, to help navigate the world of, of diet and nutrition and, and vitamin supplements. I really appreciate uh, your, your generosity and your just, just you know clarity and also gave us a lot of hope for the future. Of vision research. So just want to thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's always an honor to be here. Thank you very much. Well, great. Well, thank you on behalf of Bright Focus Foundation. This concludes today's Bright Focus chat. Thanks for being with us. Bye-bye. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.